morning and welcome to Rising. We want to bring you some updates on the Evalde School Massacre. Texas State Police have launched an investigation into the law enforcement response to the Robb Elementary School shooting that left 21 people, including 19 children, dead, killed by an 18-year-old gunman who is now deceased. Let's watch some of what DPS had to say in yesterday's press conference. The, the majority of the gunfire was in the beginning. In the beginning. I say numerous, more than 25. I mean, it was a, a lot of gunfire in the beginning. During the negotiations, there wasn't much gunfire other than trying to keep the officers at bay. But that could change depending as once we analyze the video. But right now, according to the information, he did not respond. He walked in unrestructed initially. So from the grandmother's house to the bar ditch to the school, into the school, he was not confronted by anybody. To clear the record on that, four minutes later, law enforcement are coming in to solve this problem. As we've been learning throughout the week, details that the police had originally disclosed of the case have now changed. One key detail being that the shooter, Salvador Ramos, lingered outside Robb Elementary for 12 minutes before firing shots and then walking into the school and barricading himself in a classroom where he killed 19 children and two teachers. When pressed about why police were unable to get to the shooter once he was locked inside the classroom, this is what DPS had to say. I got you. Yes, sir. Behind that. You, you guys have said that he was barricaded. Can you explain to us how he was barricaded and why you guys cannot breach that door? So I have taken all your questions into consideration. We will be doing updates. We will be doing updates to answer those questions. Answer that question now, sir. What is your name? Shimon Prokopetz from Shimon. CNN. I hear you. Because we've been given a lot of bad information. So why don't you clear all of this up now and explain to us how it is that your officers who were in there for an hour, yes, rescuing people, but yet no one was able to get inside that room. Shimon, we will, we will circle back with you. We want to answer all your questions. We want to give you the why. That, that's, that's our job. So give us time. I'm taking all your questions. I'm taking them back to talk to the team. Can you tell and, uh, us how the door was barricaded? Look, thank you for being here. Have a, we'll talk soon. We'll, we'll talk soon. Completely unacceptable. Well, what's more, police have admitted that there were officers who went inside the school and rescued their own children instead of engaging with Ramos. Uh, we've heard that some law enforcement officers actually went into school uh, to get their kids out. Can you right. talk about that? Right. So what we do know, Vanessa, right now that there was some uh, police officers, families trying to get their children out of the school because it, it was an active shooter situation right now. It's a terrible situation right now. And of course, just as we mentioned, the loss of life, it's, it's just terrible. It's a terrible tragedy right now that took place. But again, we got to keep acknowledging those brave men and women that actually were there on scene that met this suspect. And of course, we, we know that they were met with gunfire. Some of them were shot. But at the end of this, the suspect was shot, is now deceased. The threat is now uh, neutralized. Reports and videos of frantic parents outside the school show police preventing them from storming the premises to rescue their kids, all the while parents beg and scream for them to do something instead of standing there. Here's some of that. Shooting. 
Ryan, uh, I think there are three key points in this timeline that stand out to me. 11.28 a.m. is when the crash in the ditch happens. 11.30 a.m., there is a 911 call about a gunman shooting. We know that he was shooting, firing his weapon at the funeral home across the street. So that's at 11.30. The police are not on the scene until 44. Mm-hmm. 11.44. So from the time of the crash to when the police get on the scene, let alone from the time that we right. have, we know there are shots being fired, 14 minutes. And all the while, he's outside of a school, at least for 12 minutes, and nobody seems to have locked the front door. I mean, this is right. th- this, these 14 minutes are incredibly crucial. It is amazing to me that with this much, um, this much time, Mm-hmm. Um, nothing, nothing happened to prevent the obvious that was going to happen. Right. It, it, it makes you wonder what all of the theater is for. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're 23 years past Columbine, and the world has changed significantly around uh, how hardened schools are, you know, how trigger-happy people, a lot of you know, police officers are around situations, how, how, and just how nervous and, and jumpy people are around active shooters right. for obvious reasons because we've now had 23 years of experiences with these shootings. And there are so, if this was the first time that this had happened in the United States, you could imagine, okay, they, they, they just couldn't see this coming. They couldn't imagine what was happening. Right. But how you get a 911 call at 1130 and don't, let's say the school didn't realize what was going on. You immediately call the school. Oh, like, yeah. This is outside of a school. Like lock, you need to lock down. Like we we now have almost every school has lockdown drills, and so what what is the point of putting kids through all of this trauma of going through these lockdown drills, if when the real thing happens, everybody's just kind of sitting sitting on their hands. Mm-hmm. Lock the the basic things that could have been done. Lock the school. And we were told originally that there was a resource officer that quote engaged. Yep. Uh, they must have been using engage extremely loosely. Mm. Maybe saw would mm-hmm. be the word that they were trying to use a euphemism for. Uh, but if they did, then lock the school. Right. And then at least now in Sandy Hook, their school was locked. But the, these weapons are so intense yeah. that uh, he was able to fire his way into the building. So just locking a door is not going to, you know, it's not a 100% solution to this. But it but everything you can do to slow people down so that officers can get on the scene, uh, you know, potentially saves lives. I'm confused as to how long this response time is as well. 14 minutes seems incredibly long to me. Uh, I wonder where the station is because, right, like, yes, it's, it's a fact that an hour and a half outside San Antonio, this is a very spread out area. You read about the one parent who drove 40 minutes yes. to school. That's like kind of, that's how, you know, I, I grew up in a rural area where, you, some people drew, drove 45 minutes to school. And so, it, yes, okay, but really? Like, the that, police. that long? It's, a, it's an active no, shooter nobody's, outside nobody's of an closer, elementary school. Nobody's closer than 16 minutes. Right. It's an active shooter outside of an elementary right. school. The, you should have all hands on Drop everything immediately. else. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And like you said, they should have notified the school, told them to lock all of the doors, lock down the <clears> entire <throat> school. And so, yeah, you're right. Like, not any single one of these measures would be enough in and of itself definitively. We do not know that. But there are so many holes in this case. And the police have been so cagey and poorly prepared to answer the question. Yeah. Which is, again, these, are, these situations are 
so obviously very difficult to deal with, but the performance of the law enforcement has been unacceptable. And to me, and I'm curious for your take on this, I think the thing that ties this entire performance together is the militarization of the police. So starting in the late 70s, 80s, you, you, really, you started seeing the creep of, of militarization into the police force that really accelerated in the 90s and the 2000s. And there are two sides to it. Mm-hmm. The obvious side is the one that we see a lot, Bradley Balco in his book, Robocop or whatever it was, and, you know, where, where you have these cops driving these you know, up-armored Humvees yeah. and, and, and basically looking like military or paramilitary troops. And also, they start to talk in military lingo. They now refer to shifts as tours. Mm. Like an eight-hour shift, they'll say, I finished my tour. No, you finished finished your shift. And so they start to see the community as hostile terrain. Like these are are combatants that they have to interact with. And their number one priority, and this is in their training, is to get home alive. That creates the aggressiveness that you see with the community. So that's, that's the obvious part of it. The other part is the flip side, I think, that we saw in Texas here. And so in, in Iraq, the way that the military started rethinking its urban warfare strategy was that speed kills. Like if you're, if you're rushing through the street, rushing into a house and through a house, people are going to get killed. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is go not just house by house or apartment by apartment, but room by room. You secure every single room, and then you move to the next one. Yeah. And when you've cleared a house, then you clear the next house. And if it takes that, if that means it takes a week to clear a block, you do that because if you try to clear that block all in one hour, half half your platoon is going to get wiped out. And that training is now given to all of these police forces across the country. It shouldn't be, but because we've evolved into this militarized police force. They get military military training. So their number one goal is to get home safe to their family. And the way that you do that is in a situation like this is you move extremely slowly. Mm-hmm. You go classroom to classroom. And so while you'd have 19 people bleeding and in pain and in, in need of medical care, who knows how many you know, could have been saved if yes. they got in there before, they are securing the premises following their military training, which says that the way to reduce their own casualties, their own you know, the risk to themselves, is to not move mm-hmm. with any speed, because speed is what's going to get them trouble. And so as long as they continue to adopt this military mindset to policing, I think this is the kind of thing we'll see. And the other military part of it is that press conference. That's a very military press conference. It, it, yeah. it did feel like it. And I think those videos underscore exactly what you're talking about when you see these anguished parents um, experiencing the, wor- the worst moments of their lives, begging the police to do something. And we have on footage um, parents being accosted by police. Well, there's a shooter inside the school. Parents are trying mm-hmm. to save their children and would happily rush into the school and do it themselves if the cops won't um, and the cops aren't letting them. So there's all of this time elapsing and the reporter is pushing and pushing for mm-hmm. a question to what took so long? 
what took so long? We know that one girl died at the hospital and she was bleeding in that classroom and could, we don't know for sure if she could have been saved, but we know at least one person um, was suffering in there and and had injuries that could perhaps have been treatable in that time period. And so it, it boggles the mind. Um, and if the answer is because they were following training, and if that right. training is from a militarized blueprint, um, we have, we are, after all of this, we spend days in, in this, this news cycle, and everybody is, is outraged and wants to do everything. Time moves on. We go through the pattern several times a year, it feels like. And then something like this happens where there are all of these opportunities to intervene and to take preventative measures, and it doesn't work. Yeah, and after Mike Brown was killed in in Ferguson, and there was this massive show of militarized force by all the local police forces, there was a a moment where there was a national conversation around police militarization. People were like, wait a minute, why... Why does this police force that has six officers have, you know, six up-armored Humvees? Right. Like, what, that looks like, is that a cannon that they brought out? Like, what is going on here? And unfortunately, and there was momentum to roll that back and say, no, you know what? If you want to join the military, join the military. If you want to protect and serve your community, then you join a, a local police force. There was momentum in that direction. It got, it got moved off into kind of more... Uh, different types of police reform and, or defund the police and, or other more kind of radical solutions. Although, the, how radical are they if they don't actually ever have a chance of getting implemented? Like right. the, 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 the real radical step would is say, no, fundamentally policing is broken by militarization in this country. It needs, it needs, it needs fundamental radical change back to the, like the Andy Griffith days. <laughs> yeah. like bring, Andy would have run into that school. It's, this is, and this, this gets to, I think, just so many things are broken in this country. And what is the most upsetting is we don't seem to have any, like, this is a good example, all of the missed preventative measures here. Um, and we're learning more about them every day. And I don't think the picture is going to get any better for the law, local law enforcement as time goes by. Um, we can't even fix the problems. We right. can't even have the conversations about what the solutions are. And that's why things happen over and over and over again. Um, and even when we spend weeks upset and outraged and genuinely, I mean, this is not for the vast majority of Americans this is not feigned outrage. Everybody is mm-hmm. disgusted here. Um, but we even with all of this emotion and all of this desire to stop the problem, we can't. Yeah, I think, yeah, we need to remember that this isn't cowardice. Because, as you saw, a lot of police officers went in and got their own kids. Mm-hmm. This is training. Yeah. They're, they're, they're acting how they were trained to do. And you can't rely on a system that asks for people to be heroes and break from their training in order to succeed. You Although, need to train them to do the right things. It could be a combination of both. Because yes. we have seen law enforcement a- answering particular questions when, you know, why didn't cops, more police go in and said, well, they could have been shot. Yes. Right. Yes, they could have been shot. Right. Um, but the, and their training is the number one thing is to keep yourself out of harm's way mm-hmm. and get yourself home safely. That is, and that, that, is, that is their current philosophy. I understand why that would be their philosophy, but that's, a, but that's the job you sign up for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's incredible. The, the details, as details continue to emerge, it just keeps looking worse and worse. Yeah, and we're going to talk about this more on your radar. That's uh, right. Coming up next. Yeah. Emily, what's on your radar? 
Well, we all grocery shop. We all have loved ones who go to school or teach. Very few people are indifferent to the horrors of mass shootings. Even the worst politicians have children they care about, children who go to the movies, go to offices and churches and summer camps. Steve Scalise survived a mass shooting by a craved, crazed progressive and maintained his position on the Second Amendment. You might think that's crazy. Your position is reasonable. I think it's crazy to assume anything short of a total ban on gun ownership will stop these shootings. So let's do it then, you might say. Again, I think that is a reasonable argument. It's one I disagree with, but it's not one that I think renders you an evil person who wants people to be defenseless when their families are attacked. I don't think that. I think it's reasonable. I think you're like me, like Ryan, like just about every person I know. You never want another child, another teacher, another family to endure this trauma because we know it's just by the grace of God that we have it. That's where the vast majority of us are, regardless of politics, and that's exactly what shooters prey on. It's why they violate many of our safest places, churches, shops, schools. In an instant, the mundane comforts of life in 21st century America are replaced with a war zone. It's power and it's attention for people who feel like they get too little. So it's become a playbook. As in, the case of, as in the case of shootings, there are many measures that governments and individuals can take to mitigate the risks of, of arson or cars plowing into Christmas parades. Guns are not natural like fire. They are human made. Regulating them is absolutely a way to reduce risk. The same goes for building codes and security and parade routes and red flags. Let's put all of that on the table. You probably don't know the names Douglas Mai and Leon James Bone. They died in the Markley fire, which merged with other Northern California fires in 2020 and killed six people in total. You almost certainly don't know the name of the man accused of starting the Markley fire, and I won't repeat it here. He's credibly accused of starting the blaze to conceal the murder of a woman he went on a date with, Priscilla Castro. In Japan, in Japan, the man suspected of killing 25 people in a 2021 hospital fire is believed to have been inspired by the man who killed 36 people by setting fire to the Kyoto Animation Studio back in 2019. Suspected arson is behind other high-profile blazes that have rapidly claimed dozens of innocent lives and destroyed their communities, including a 2001 fire in Japan that killed 44 people. The point is that guns are absolutely a part of this equation, but unfortunately, even all of our regulatory might can't guarantee an end to these dangers. And that's not me punting on guns, it's just that in a country with nearly every regulation short of a ban that has this level of cultural corrosion, monsters will find a way. When it comes to mitigating the risk of these shootings, which happen outside the US as well, two variables in particular seem frustratingly obvious to me. Maybe in the same way gun control seems obvious to many of you. But these should be completely apolitical. Back in 2019, friend of the show Zed Jelani wrote about a new working paper that sought to test, quote, the relationship between the level of news coverage and the occurrence of mass shootings. At its mean, the authors found, ABC News coverage is suggested to cause approximately three mass shootings in the subsequent week, equivalent to 58% of mass shootings in the United States. Now, that was just not to single ABC out. They used ABC News as the uh, case study that they placed the experiment on. So as Zed noted, they found that news media coverage of shootings decreased during national, natural disasters, which was associated with fewer shootings the following week. So in other words, 
This is partially within our control. We don't have to sacrifice anything to do it. The implication of that research is that lives will be saved if the news media modifies our coverage as though natural disaster were impending. Report what's in the public's interest and focus on what we need to know. Don't focus on our morbid curiosities. You can report on details about the shooters without a new headline for every single disturbing detail that emerges, coupled with those disturbing images that emerge. Zed also pointed out that back in 2017, the suicide awareness organization SAVE released a guide for news organizations to avoid coverage that might needlessly incentivize a copycat while still providing the public with necessary information. They include avoiding stating the perpetrator's name frequently, portraying the shooter as heroic, romanticized, a victim, or a tortured soul, showing graphic images of the crime scene, showing images of the shooter with weapons or dressed in military-style clothing. That was five years and way too many mass shootings ago, and this is what I've seen over the last few days. Which brings me to another point. These mass killers almost all use guns. Almost all live without their fathers. Almost all have crossed onto law enforcement's radar at some point, And almost all have clearly telegraphed their instability on the internet. Every student and every parent should receive regular information on what these red flags look like and how to report them. Reporting should be incredibly easy. Anyone who uses the internet Anyone should know they need to report behavior like what people saw from Uvalde suspect on Ubo or from FaceTime in Germany. Companies that offer algorithmic monitoring of students' public posts haven't quite figured out how to improve on the basic model of human intelligence. But we're losing that too. Like fatherlessness, broken homes, untreated mental illness, and more, these consequences of our torn social fabric mean we're more likely to deal with evil and then less likely to catch it before tragedy unfolds. There's something that feels very tangible about calling for door modifications or gun laws. And there are reasonable proposals on that table, from media coverage to internet reporting like we just talked about. The school and law enforcement seem to have failed their students and staff in incomprehensible ways that we have been covering on the show today and will continue to cover. But until we fix deeper problems, even all of the actions on the table might not be enough to stop this pattern. We need tighter families, tighter communities, and less internet. We need to wake up not only to the evil potential of guns, but to the evil that flourishes and will weaponize everything in this completely alienated culture. This is a dark time, despite all of our comforts, and we have a lot of work to do. We can't all vote on gun legislation or safety bills ourselves, but we all have a vote in the culture of our country and of our community, and that vote is cast by the way we live our lives. Ryan, something I was thinking about is, you know, we can do, we can do a lot. And in the years since Columbine, as we covered earlier in the show, and in fact, we have, and uh, things still keep slipping through the cracks. Um, gun technology has not advanced in the years since Columbine, but this pattern seems to continue repeating and repeating and repeating. And I do think there's more we can do on guns, absolutely no question about it. But even then, um, I think we have just rapidly slid into a very, very, very dark period of our history. Um, and we still haven't realized that times have changed so much um, in a short period. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I th yeah, I think we need a social democracy. We need a community. Like this, this all against all society that we've produced and then layered on top of it, what, 400 million guns in a country of whatever, whatever the yeah, number is, yeah, 330 yeah. million people. Uh, is is going to lead to this type of of violence, and 
trying to trying to prevent it on the back end by you know hardening up schools, by sending uh, more cops to schools, by arming teachers. Like you're you know you're you're always going to be playing catch up in that in that you know. But besides the fact that you're going to be kind of traumatizing everybody, like right. what, make, having a teacher, you know, forcing a teacher to walk around with a with a handgun. Uh, when when officers with long rifles down in Texas, you know, won't even confront a, right. a shooter. Yeah. But so as long as we have, as long as we're tearing the fabric of the society apart, as we have been continuously, basically since the late late 1970s, making it harder and harder uh, for people to get ahead. Uh, the, maybe I'm the last generation, roughly, mm-hmm. where. You know, we felt like it was there was a chance that our kids would have it better than us. Yes. Like that's not, that people don't really sense that anymore. Right. They think, well, my kids are going to have it worse than I had it, but now we're going to struggle to see how much less worse mm-hmm. they have it than than these other people. Uh, the point about copycats, I think, also should inform our thinking about the drills that all of these public schools are doing. In oh, this interesting. Way. So and. Uh, Chris Hayes was talking about this on Twitter, and I'm not sure if he was referring to studies studies on this or just intuition. But a these these drills where you go hide in the corner, you hide in a bathroom. You know, six and my kids' school is doing it today. In yeah. fact, that I thought about keeping them home from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they go hide in a corner, they go hide in cubbies, they go hide in a bathroom. He was pointing out that it plant it actually plants the seed yeah. in a handful of kids. No, I agree. That this is a thing that they could do. Yes. Because now they see the whole school f- f- afraid. Mm-hmm. They see the school moving because of the thing that a single person is doing. Yeah. And for a certain number of sick people, that's intoxicating. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. And to your earlier point, that it, we can do all of these things on the back end that either help or hurt, and maybe it's some combination of both. Um, but it's amazing to me, like the one, one of the really poignant things was, I, I forget who reported it, but there was a student at the school who this shooter had sent text messages or messages over the internet of his guns. And um, he said something like, back to him, like, bro, why do you need all of that? And this was not very long ago. And so what you have here is another student and this, these pictures of a, a kid amassing mm-hmm. weapons, he's 18 years old, amassing weapons, he seems unstable. He's someone you know is a little off. He's someone you know has said weird things in the past. And you don't say anything about the fact that he seems to be stockpiling ammunition and weapons. Right. I think he bought like... 375 rounds, something like that. Um, and I don't know how much of it this kid was, how many pictures this kid was sent and what he saw, but he sees this. Uh, that is such an obvious, obvious, yeah. and it's not the, the kid's fault at all, but it's the the culture. Like, we need to take care of each other. And right. there, and like, there's so many things that, that we can do. There's small things we can do, even though, like, locking the front door of the school, which doesn't seem to have happened, we can do that stuff. And yeah. unless we have, you mentioned in, earlier in the show, like Andy Griffith, he would have run into the school. Yeah, he would have. Be better people. Yeah. I mean, we, and that's what I meant by sort of like you have a, a vote in our culture. Um, and we saw tons of parents trying to get into the school, desperately trying to get in the school. We just don't, we don't connect to each other in ways that are conducive to having healthy right. communities. And, and our strict, absolute focus on individual rights blinds us to other possibilities that exist for this. And so, yeah. for instance, like, you you would say like look you know a, a lot of people know a school shooter when they see one mm-hmm. like there's a se- you can sense it like 
school shooter has become like a joke for like a, a designation for for particular kids who are malcontent, dis, like they're 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 clearly suffering badly. They're getting bullied. They're bullying in return. I think that it actually been a joke about this individual. Abs that, absolutely, yeah. and so. You 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 would you'd like to say, look, if you're a gun if you're a gun seller, you know, and you sell a gun to somebody who is obviously probably going to use that and go shoot up a school, then you're liable for this if they do it. And then we're going to say, look, this is who did it. Jury, what do you think? Should this person have been sold a gun? If you look at that from a strict individual rights perspective, that's absurd. You, like, there's no way to draw that line. There's no way to write that law where you could actually hold that person liable unless right. you held them liable for anybody that committed violence with a gun that you sold. But from a community perspective, yes. if as a community you can identify these people who are hurting and as a result might hurt people, and then there are, are programs and resources and, and thought and caring that go into... A net. Yeah, and go into like stopping them, violence interruption, interrupting that cycle, then maybe you could get somewhere. And there's, there, there actually, Chris Murphy told me this week that he's hoping to get like $5 billion in this you know, gun, gun violence interruption programs if he can if he can move it through which is the thing it addresses school shootings but it also addresses re regular violence mm -hmm. out, in the, out in the street which is something that uh, you know many of the communities want even more than gun control laws yeah they're, and they're seeing increases in violent crimes in many communities yeah. Um, and yeah no absolutely I think that's you just said that so well um, and it, I was talking to Yoram Hazoni on our podcast at The Federalist yesterday who makes a really good point and he said it very well he said we've privatized virtue um, mm -hmm. and when you sort of rely on individuals uh, or government alone for you know to be the the methods of virtue of of uh, it, of sort of creating a virtuous community, um, whether it's whether it's just an overemphasis on rugged individualism or government, you are going to be stuck in these situations where the, the social fabric is so torn that people come right through the cracks and commit unthinkable evil. Yeah. That's where we are. Well, Ryan, I'm looking forward to what's on your radar next. All right, Ryan, what's on your radar today? So if you live in the Washington, D.C. area, you've probably noticed that our city has been plastered with ads from a coalition saying that it represents the American solar industry, pressuring the Biden administration over solar industry trade policies. Their claim is that a new Commerce Department investigation into potentially illegal Chinese trade policies has brought a halt to imports of components needed for major solar projects. The PR campaign has resulted in a slew of articles, noting that more than 300 such projects are now on hold. Now, to be clear, it's awful that any solar projects are on hold. Communities are expecting that power generation to come online. And if we're going to hit our climate targets, we've got to move fast. And some of the financiers of the trade investigation appear to be vulture capitalists looking, just looking to leverage chaos for a shakedown of profit. Now, that's all bad, but there's more to this story. Consider this. How independent is our clean energy economy if the mere threat of an investigation into Chinese cheating in the industry can bring projects across the country grinding to a halt? And more to the point, the way that China has built its monopoly on critical components is by subsidizing extremely dirty coal-fired energy production and staffing the sector with forced labor. What's fascinating, though, is that one person who genuinely understands the importance of building a domestic solar manufacturing industry is none other than Joe Manchin. 
And what better place for him to lay out that philosophy than Davos at the World Economic Forum this week? Here's King Manchin, and because he's king, I want to play the full three-minute clip of his answer because where his, where, where his mind is has a lot to say about where the industry is headed. Senator Manchin, I'm going to turn to you because you are, uh, for obvious reasons, absolutely central to any progress being made on President Biden's domestic agenda. Question one, do you think any other legislation, meaningful legislation, will get passed before the midterms? Well, first of all, we ought to, we ought to look at what we've been able to accomplish so far, which has been tremendous, and in a bipartisan way. Everyone overlooks that, thinking we haven't done anything. President Biden has had more success than most any president in the first term, and we should agree to that. Next of all, yes, I do. I believe there's an opportunity. There's a responsibility and opportunity that we can do something. First of all, inflation is harming every uh, person in America. Everyone's feeling it hard. It's inflicting uh, pain on the world. So we should be looking at getting our financial house in order, paying down our debt. We should be looking at also our drug pricing. There's no reason in the world why we can't uh, negotiate for Medicare uh, having better pricing and also for uh, different types of medicines, especially uh, you know whether it be for diabetes, and things of this sort that they need for insulin, that that should be something that's life-saving and very affordable. Those things can be done, and we know that. And, and Next of all, the third thing is going to be energy and climate, and you can't do one without the other. The United States of America has an abundant supply of natural gas and oil, and we can use our fossil and the cleanest technology humanly possible to make sure that we are reliable, we have reliability, and we have security. If you have that, then we're going to be able to replace some of the more pollutant energy in the world and help backfill all of EU, if you will. Natural gas, uh, we have our uh, uh, platforms that we're talking about, uh, and, and that is something that we're developing. But also we have the ability to go down two paths, a path of investing in some of the technology that's going to be needed for the transition that will happen. But eliminating one and for the other one, that's the European model that Germany followed. It wasn't successful. We should not repeat that. The United States has the ability to be an energy leader and also a supporter of our allies around the world that are having problems right now. So just to be clear, to those people outside the United States who worry that the ambitious climate agenda of the president hasn't really gone very far, you're saying that there will we be We have progress. done an awful lot, and that's, that's not cracked. What we have done already... And the, and the bipartisan infrastructure bill, that's, a, that's more than it's ever been done. And we have so much more that we can do. But you can't do it by abandoning the fossil industry that gives us the ability to have reliability and security, not just for our nation, but what the world is needing today, all of our allies and friends. You can't abandon that. And right now we have a little bit of a, a, a discussion going on of which way this is going to go. But if we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars investing in the new technology that's going to be needed for the transition of a carbon-free or carbon-less environment and an energy sector, then you have to be able to make sure that can intersect and take care of this. You can't replace one until you have something to replace it with. And so can we pause for a moment on the fact that Manchin doesn't just hold the future of American clean energy development in his hands, but because what America does influences everyone else, the entire world has to ask this senator from West Virginia for permission to move forward? 
So speaking of small state senators, Manchin was actually followed by Chris Coons, who's a Delaware senator, who's a close ally of Biden's, who talked about the need to think strategically when it comes to energy independence. Now, that phrase has long been code for drilling for more oil and natural gas. But as the world transitions to clean energy, the term is taking on new meaning. Today, it also means having access to the raw materials needed to make solar panels and batteries and wind turbines, as well as the manufacturing capacity, neither of which the U.S. currently has at scale. So Manchin responded to Coons this way. In Russia, Putin has weaponized energy. And I'm concerned that China could do the same with critical elements of minerals. The North American continent has the ability to be the energy juggernaut of the world. If we have Canada, United States, and Mexico, with the amount of critical minerals that we have deposits in those three countries on one continent, working together seamlessly, we will absolutely reduce our dependency on Asia, on China right now, who does 80% of the processing, has a total control, almost a monopoly, if you will, on the critical elements that we need. We can't move into electric vehicle and being dependent on foreign supply chains. The United States, that's not who we are. It's not how we became. So in other words, saving the planet from a climate apocalypse might not be enough to get American political elites to deal with the crisis. But put it in terms they understand, great power competition, geopolitics, China, empire, and all of a sudden, it starts to seem like it's worth doing. Now, of course, the U.S. doesn't do its global strategy without input from multinational corporations, and the solar industry campaign is having an impact. That campaign, by the way, is funded by multiple companies with production operations in China. Now, the stalled projects understandably have people concerned, but two points about that. One, China has done this before, halting exports at a critical moment for political leverage. That part's nothing new. But there's also something else going on that becomes obvious when you step back and think about it. Why might solar companies not want to ship us their goods right now? Hmm. Is there anybody else who surged into the market recently thanks to their primary supplier of energy deciding to invade Ukraine? Yes, exactly. Europe is massively driving up the price of clean energy inputs and is buying as much as humanly possible. There has been one interesting development, though, since the commerce investigation and the threat to make Chinese companies play fair. A South Korean-based solar company that owns a massive manufacturing plant in Georgia announced it would be investing $320 million in a major new expansion, specifically citing the uncertainties in the market. And Emily, they, all of the different trade industry publications that reported on this read into this that it was the Commerce Department investigation, the threat that they're going to make China play fair, that got this Korean company to say, oh, well, then there's a huge market in the U.S. now for actually manufacturing solar components right here. So they're like, hey, let's put $320 million in here. This is exactly what trade policy is supposed to do, and it's exactly why these, this kind of China-funded uh, solar trade industry is is trying to stop it from happening because they don't want us investing in a solar industry. They want to make all the panels, ironically, of course, with subsidized coal, you know, burning up their you know Western Chinese sand and turning yes. it into the wafers that then turn into solar panels. Well, yeah, and that's the bottom line. It's that like there is there money to be made in the industry, sure, but there's still a lot of money to be made polluting in other countries that have just completely mm -hmm. different politics than ours. And so when John Kerry was asked, he's our, our, what our global climate envoy, I don't forget what fancy title he has, um, about the balance of you know confronting China for their human rights abuses and dealing with them 
on climate, he, it's actually legitimately in his head. He's saying, well, if we don't get cl China on climate, then we don't get climate. And it's the same with India. And there are these massive countries where it's like, we can do literally everything in this country. We could have the most, the smallest carbon footprint possible for all of America. And without cooperation from China and without cooperation from India, um, we're going to still be in really, really rough shape. And so we're then again, energy independence becomes not really a thing because your energy independence, if it's clean energy, if it's uh, traditional energy sources, it's still tied to these other countries that we have all of these foreign conflicts with, which at the end of the day, it's like, well, Great. Right. Here we are. Right. And we shouldn't fool ourselves. Like the, 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 a significant way that we cleaned up our pollution in the United States in the 70s and 80s was by shipping our pollution off to China and India and, and other countries. It wasn't, it wasn't just that we went for the low we wages. We still do that. We're, and we still do that. So, still do so if we're drawing down our carbon emissions numbers by having China build more and more coal plants yes. in western China to produce the solar panels, that then drive our solar manufacturing capacity into the ground, that's, that's not getting us where we need to be. And Manchin makes a really good point about the potential for North America. Mexico just recently announced that they were nationalizing a bunch of uh, lith lithium deposits yeah. that they found there. Can, you know, so the Canada, the U.S., and Mexico could easily become kind of the beating heart of the clean energy industry around the country. But we can't do it if we're going to allow China to basically wipe out our domestic capacity. Yeah, and I was going to say exactly two things. Rare earth minerals in China, things that are used to make, for instance, tes Tesla batteries. Mm -hmm. These are like incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah. And even just, um, and Manchin actually made that point, but so you have the rare earth min mineral deposits in China. You have, um, and we have some of that in this country too, but then we also have, um, like say, the transition to, to crypto was supposed to be great for the environment. <laughs> well, no, because... It, I mean, but like right, Bitcoin yeah, mining the takes Texas, yeah. right, and so yeah. all of these like new solutions are still in in so many ways, unless it is renewables, like fundamentally tethered to the energy that we have now, or to um, deposits in other countries or resources in other countries, and so the transition in and of itself. Manchin, you're right. He he makes a good point that it, this is like way rockier than um, I think it it seems at times. Right, and so. And people should remember that if, if their solar project is on hold right now, so let's say Indiana or elsewhere, they're seeing a bunch of these projects on hold, it's actually probably not necessarily because of this Commerce Department investigation. It's because all of these companies are breaking their contracts with the U.S. and selling to yeah. Europe for double. Right. And, and there, Which is a, shows you that we need more capacity. Like, it's, absolutely. And then it also shows you that um, we need to, I mean, a lot of things need to change in order for this off-ramp basically mm -hmm. to be smooth. Um, be, we, and we are not there right now. Yeah. yeah. And a bunch of jobs in Georgia. Right. Hey, can't beat that. That's right. <laughs> we'll have more rising right after this. Supporters of ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan have been uh, rocking the Capitol recently. We're, and we're joined here to fill us in on what's been going on by Akbar Ahmed, who is a, a senior foreign affairs correspondent at the Huffington Post, my old colleague, Akbar. Uh, thanks you, thank you for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Ryan. And so, uh, so Akbar, you were actually uh, you're from, from Pakistan. You were there uh, when, when Imran Khan was ousted. Uh, so can you give us some of the background? Because whenever I see uh, a, a foreign leader who has uh, uh, <laughs> crossed the United States 
suddenly lose his, uh, his job. I'm like, oh, well, CIA is at it again. Uh, I, I, I'll try to like, find the argument to, make, to make, uh, find the evidence to make that argument. But uh, you're, you're often a much more sober observer of things. So what, what happened? Uh, why, why was Khan ousted, and, and you know, where is this going? Because it seems like uh, this, it, is, it is not going as well as uh, the, the new government, or the new regime, uh, thought it might. Yeah, so you know, it's useful to think about who Imran Khan is in Pakistan, right? This is the equivalent of electing LeBron James. He is a cricket hero. He has a lot of genuine support, especially among young people. So he was elected in this wave election, but what he did to kind of form a government was he made a lot of deals with some very slippery politicians, right? Pakistan is a parliamentary system. Uh, when I was in Pakistan in March was when all those people suddenly woke up and said, we don't really want to be with you anymore. And these are very, these aren't populists, right? These are people who've been in power for decades. They'll have their family fiefdoms. They've got a seat in parliament because their grandfather had one and they own all the land. Um, suddenly Imran loses their support and he loses his parliamentary majority. His, his supporters are now extremely angry. Uh, what he did at that moment is what got him into trouble. Uh, he started to say there's a foreign conspiracy against me. Uh, there was, look, there was a rupture with the US. There's no denying that. Imran Khan was actually in Moscow on the day the Russians invaded Ukraine and he still never spoke with Biden while he was prime minister. Uh, that said, there were a lot of domestic reasons that he was kicked out. As soon as he lost his parliamentary majority, he tried to shut down the entire parliament. Uh, Supreme Court said, you can't do that. He got voted out. And now he's saying, my government needs to come back. He's, what I think puts the lie to his claims of a foreign conspiracy is a couple of things. Uh, he's convinced that a pretty minor State Department official named Donald Liu, not empowered, not a Biden whisperer by any means, that's who Imran is saying devised this master plan to kick him out. Uh, and second is, there's just kind of very limited U.S. interest in Pakistan right now. Uh, there's the Ukraine war, there's other crises. Uh, America is a very useful punching bag, has a very bad track record in Pakistan, as you know. Drone attacks, um, a history of supporting dictators. So for Imran, calling America the problem is very easy. Let me give you a couple pieces of evidence where, that, where I think there is American fingerprint. There are American fingerprints on this, and get your reaction to it. One would be so after after the Taliban takes Kabul, Imran Khan just says out loud publicly, the U.S. is no longer absolutely not allowed to use uh, you know, Western Pakistan bases to launch drone strikes like that. And that's the that's the main thing that the U.S. wanted. Pakistan was, was to be able to continue to have these bases and op, and operate you know in Afghanistan from there. So he so he does so he he does that. And separately to your point, you know he had this minority government uh, and he cobbled it together with these very slippery politicians. And at the time, a lot of people said Imran Khan is actually a a a product in some ways of the military here because these minor slippery parties are all associated with ISI and the military and they would not be supporting him if there wasn't some arrangement there and so live by the sword die by the sword it it's it was those part those little minor parties who are influenced by the military and therefore also influenced by United States military who when they withdrew their support uh his support 
craters in Parliament. Now, I'm no fan of Imran Khan. I'm not trying to de defend his regime. But that would, be, that would be my argument for why it does seem like there's some American influence here. What, what's, your, what's your thinking about that? Because you know the area a lot better than I do. Yeah. My thought is, I think sometimes the specter of American feelings can drive people. Um, yeah. I think for sure Imran poking, uh, poking a finger in Biden's eye, right, and picking fights with the U.S., saying I don't want military cooperation, was extremely frustrating to people in Washington. It was even more frustrating to the military, which, as you say, backed him from the get-go, allowed him to carry out a domestic crackdown against journalists, against opposition leaders, against you know dissidents of any stripe. He lost the military support really dramatically, and that is when he started to lose his majority. Now, what I think we need to know more of is, did the military, the Pakistani military, make that decision to withdraw that support of their own accord because they thought, oh my gosh, we can't lose our tie with the US, our biggest patron, right? And ultimately, they want their shiny toys and military assistance from the US. Did they decide to do that? Or was there some kind of communication and conversation that they had with partners in Washington, Pentagon, elsewhere, where they thought, okay, this isn't really sustainable for us. That's kind of the missing piece here. And, you know, as, as we know, the Pakistani military, the ISI is not going to come out and tell us what their calculus is. Um, all of that to say, Imran is probably coming back into power, right? I mean, this, this whole idea of the imported government and the Americans have blocked me can't actually stop him from winning elections the second that they happen, which I think he's very likely to do. So... If there was a U.S. fingerprint there, it wasn't a very well thought out long term strategy because you're going to have to deal with Imran either later this year or early next year. Mm. And tell us where you think this goes with the, the Biden administration's relationship and negotiations with uh, Pakistan moving forward. If Khan is back in power and in the interim, um, how do you th think this affects the conversations? I think it's really tough for the Biden administration right now. They don't have... Um, they don't have a strategy for dealing with Khan. I think their, their biggest priority is to ensure the Pakistani economy doesn't really collapse, right? So Afghanistan is already well over the brink. Pakistan, I'd say, is on the brink. The rupee is now at more than 200 rupees to a dollar. I mean, this was a currency that when I was growing up was 60 rupees to a dollar, and we thought that was insane. Um, the Biden administration has quietly helped the new government secure a new IMF loan, which is extremely important for them to survive. But again, is something that, you know, if you look at the history of U.S. involvement with foreign countries, IMF loan to IMF loan is not necessarily a sustainable or positive way to do it. Um, it's like Oprah, you get an IMF loan, you get an IMF loan. Right. Look your seat, um, it's an IMF loan. Strings attached. Yeah. Strings attached. Um, but, but the Biden team doesn't seem to have a plan right now. Um, Pakistan is extremely important for them, and they'll have to figure something out. Uh, and I, I would expect that that would entail once Imran probably wins new elections, having Biden actually call him. That's like been this huge sticking point where for two years there just hasn't been that high level connection. Yeah, and how how does the disaster in Afghanistan uh, pl play into this? And there's there's just new reporting out about uh, the the extreme number of children that are now either either starving to death or on the brink of of starving to death. And what what is that what is that doing to the to the region? It's unfortunately, uh, you would hope for a kind of altruism and sympathy, and we've seen kind of the opposite, where there's a lot of anger in Pakistan thinking, 
the U.S. messed up Afghanistan, it is our neighbor, and now we have to deal with it again, right? Pakistan has a long history of taking in Afghan refugees, to some extent caring for them. Um, that flow is likely to increase as Afghanistan becomes more desperate. Pakistan can't shoulder that burden, right, the same way that it used to be able to do. And meanwhile, Pakistan can't do a lot to shore up Afghanistan. The Biden administration would say we're doing a lot. They've given Afghanistan $720 million in humanitarian assistance. It's clearly not enough. Um, and we, we can't forget the security aspect of this, right? So there's not just the Afghan Taliban, there's the Pakistani Taliban, which operates from Afghanistan, carries out attacks in Pakistan. It's an extremely tense and destabilizing time. Um, ISIS is also rising in Afghanistan. So it's, it's really hard to see rays of hope. Um, I would say the best kind of bet is shore up a way for Afghanistan to not plummet further. Sure. And one last question is just if you could explain to, you know, the, the average news consumer um, why this relationship is an important one for the United States, sort of the 30,000 foot view question. Um, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, Afghanistan is a huge factor, 40 million people, 97% uh, of whom could be in dire need by the end of the year. That's not something the U.S. or anyone should want happening on, on you know, the world's watch. Pakistan is also a major nuclear power, right? And that's really important to remember. Pakistan has had nuclear brinkmanship with India uh, repeatedly in recent years. That's not something the U.S. wants. And we have to remember that the U.S. is really prioritizing the region, not from the point of view of, you know, the, the old wars, which the U.S. is very bored of now in Afghanistan and Iraq, from the point of view of the new tensions, right? Mm -hmm. So India, neighboring Pakistan, neighboring Afghanistan, is the U.S.'s top partner against China. The U.S. doesn't want to see that relationship and that region crumble as the Biden administration is thinking about how do we take on China in 10 That's, years. That is such an important point. Yeah. yeah, Akbar, thanks so much for filling us in. Thanks both. And we will have more Rising right after this. Well, new developments indicate that the pink tide is returning to Latin America, and we're joined now by director for the Andes, Jimena Sanchez, who's here to discuss this trend. Jimena, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Of course. So let's just dive right in. Um, tell us what we know about the return of the pink tide to Latin America and any recent developments that um, you know, really indicate this could, this could be a, a return of the pink tide. Well, in Colombia this Sunday, we're going to have the first presidential elections in history where you could potentially have a left-wing left candidate actually win. Uh, for some 200 years, Colombia has mostly been governed by conservative and right-wing presidents. Uh, but the pandemic, the insecurity, a large civic strike that took over most of the country a year ago, as well as a lot of discontent with traditional politics has placed a left-wing populist president uh, candidate, uh, Gustavo Petro, and a vice presidential candidate who is Afro-Colombian, Francia Marquez, uh, the first time in history that you have uh, vice presidential candidates of Afro-descendancy in that country with the potential of actually winning in the first round this Sunday. And Jimena, to, to give people a sense of you know, how, how big a shift this could be, can you talk a little bit about the backgrounds of both uh, uh, Petro and Francia Marquez? Because these are not the typical types of 
politicians that have been winning elections in, in Colombia? Not at all. Um, most of the uh, winners of the elections in all of these years have been from uh, the political parties that have ruled the country for years. Um, they have come from the established families. Um, they have been either technocrats or uh, the sons or relatives of prior uh, candidates for presidency and so forth. So Gustavo Petro is the former mayor of Bogota, a very progressive mayor. He is a former member of the M-19 uh, guerrilla that demobilized and ushered in the 1991 uh, Constitutional Assembly that led to a new political constitution. Um, and the vice presidential candidate, uh, Francia Marquez, is Afro-descendant. She is a single mother. She's never held political office. She won the Goldman Environmental Prize. And she has, uh, her claim to fame really has been that she had her community stand up to illegal gold mining interests in the region of Colombia that is one of the most hotly disputed at this time by illegal armed groups. So neither of them are your typical uh, political figures in the national stage in Colombia. So yeah, on that point, um, what do we know or, or how are there differences in these um, politicians and their in these candidates' uh, attitude or posture towards the United States? Is there a, a sort of general consensus that they share on the United States, the role of the United States and perhaps problems in their own country? Um, how do they approach that question of the U.S.? Well, the relationship between the U.S. and Colombia has been a very bipartisan relationship, both here and there. Uh, so in general, I think that um, they both want to have a good relationship with the United States. However, some of their points of views are not your typical points of views. One of them being that um, Gustavo Petro wants to open up relationships with um, the cousin country of <laughs> Venezuela, something that um, is not particularly favored uh, by sectors in the political establishment here in the United States. Um, also that um, they want to take a look at the free trade agreements that Colombia has signed globally, especially the U.S.-Colombia free trade agreement. Uh, they want to change uh, the focus of the economy, which at this time is very heavily reliant on extractive industries um, and look for more environmentally sustainable uh, type uh, projects, maybe industrialization. Um, this has also uh, produced some concern among investors and um, other sectors in the United States. Um, and I think lastly, rather than the main focus of the U.S.-Columbia relationship being security policy um, and drug policy, I think we're going to see that the main focus is going to be more on advancing the peace process with the FARC, uh, opening up uh, dialogue with the secondary guerrilla group, the ELN, and uh, more uh, what would be like social projects uh, to try to address poverty and inequality in Colombia, which um, has gotten to new highs after the pandemic. Yeah, and, and you also had you know, the, the left winning recently in Chile with uh, Gabriel Boric declaring an end to neoliberalism. Uh, you, you had a couple, you've had victories elsewhere. It, it looks like uh, Brazil is potentially trending in a, in a leftward direction. Why, why do you think it is that Mexico, you know, why do you, why do you think it is that 
Central and uh, South America are responding in this way to the, to the current you know, global conditions compared to other countries that seem to be you know, kind of moving in a, in a rightward authoritarian direction? Well, I think that this has to do really with the pandemic. I mean, already the region was very unequal. Uh, the distribution of resources really uh, didn't hit a lot of the uh, rural and poor population or the more ethnic uh, populations like Afro-descendants and indigenous communities. And I think that um, the pandemic and the bad handling of the funds to alleviate the pandemic um, and rampant corruption led to a major backlash against the whole economic model that's really been the central model pushed in the past 60 years in the region, which has been very neoliberal. And so, um, people are trying to look for a change, something that can help them uh, alleviate poverty, help them with hunger, which has grown in many areas, in particular Colombia. And in the case of Colombia, particularly, uh, the hardline security policies are really aligned more with the right. And uh, unfortunately, those policies haven't been giving the result that they should. So Colombia has had multiple massacres in recent years. Um, killings of social leaders are rampant. And we've had mass displacement, the highest level of insecurity and humanitarian crisis in the past five years. And so I think that people are looking for a difference. And so they see that, uh, why not? Why not try something completely different? Um, and that's why they're rallying. Uh, behind, and I mean not the entire country, but the poorer uh, sectors, the sectors most affected by violence, uh, behind a uh, left-wing candidate. Yeah, and of course, then there's the other side of that coin when people are thinking, you know, why not try something else? It can give way to the rise of, you know, actual fascist wings of the right and uh, different factions in that sense. What is the contrast with some of these pink tide candidates? Um, what are we seeing from the right in, in some of these countries in response to the conditions you just discussed, the pandemic conditions? Um, how is the right responding uh, to, to those same factors? Well, interestingly, um, you have a situation in that is very interesting in Colombia. You have kind of a out of left field candidate that is actually uh, polling very high and is the major um, opposition to the right wing candidate in Colombia. His name is Rodolfo Hernandez, and um, he basically has uh, no real ties to the political establishment. Um, his, he is popular for coming up with, you know, uh, very uh, colorful tweets and just saying what he thinks at the moment. Uh, he has a generalized policy that is uh, anti-corruption, but no real agenda. So we're seeing that um, that has been an interesting response. In the case of Brazil, actually, um, the right wing um, has been gaining a lot of, of, of ground. And there you're seeing that that's mostly because of that same thing, that um, speaking directly to the emotions and the fears of many people in the country, uh, no more political correctness in any of the statements, and also programs to try to alleviate poverty. In the case of Brazil, that is gaining ground, and we're seeing that um, the right is uh, very possibly going to win again. In the case of Colombia, it hasn't worked as well, although the same effort was tried. And that's 
basically because of the corruption. Um, the other response that we're seeing in Colombia from the right is a lot of fear mongering um, about Venezuela, about, you know, if Petro wins, we're going to have a repeat of Venezuela and Colombia. But if you look at the history of the left in Colombia, um, that's very unlikely uh, to be the case. Right. Uh, not, not to put you too much on the spot, but any sense of how this is going to go this weekend? Hmm. Well, after working in Cologne for 20 years, anything could happen. Um, but uh, the polls are really pointing towards Gustavo Petro winning on the first round. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think it's hmm. going to be very close between him. Uh, the wild card is going to be who will be the second one uh, because Rodolfo Hernandez has been polling so well. And there is a whole sector of the population that's undecided. And historically in Colombia, that population tends to go more with the establishment. Um, it could also be uh, FICO, which is the uh, right-wing candidate. In any event, I think it will go to a second round. Um, my biggest fear, given what just happened in March 13th with the congressional elections, where there were lots of calls for uh, fraud and resignation of the registrar of the National Electoral Council, is that uh, one of the sides may not accept the results. Um, and in a context where you just had two major armed strikes in the country, such a high level of violence, uh, so many death threats issued against the candidates and even uh, the revelation of assassination plots that this could turn into a violent situation. And so yeah. our call is for the U.S. to really say, whatever happens, keep calm and let the process run itself out. Yeah, it does feel like there's a potential for uh, the right to run the same playbook they ran in 2019 in Bolivia, which was leading up to the elections, warn that there was going to be all of this fraud, and then on the night of the election say, oh, look, there was all this fraud, have people pour into the streets, you know, they basically force Evo out of power, and then uh, they, held, as people, they held on to power for a year until uh, Evo's party was able to come back. So we certainly could see uh, another version of that. It's a, that's an interesting point to look out for it. But Jimena, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you. And we will have more Rising right after this. All right, we want to bring on uh, now Julia Rock, who a friend of the show and a reporter at Lever News, whose uh, late, latest piece is about the Biden administration's uh, pushback against a historic uh, climate change lawsuit. And this is, a, this is a really fascinating lawsuit. And it's one that argues that there is a bedrock constitutional right to a livable planet, uh, it, which both sounds absurd on the one hand and obvious on the other hand. If, if the Constitution doesn't guarantee the right to, if it guarantees the right to general welfare. To life. Uh, to life. <laughs> life is in there. <laughs> And how do you pursue happiness if Fourteenth Amendment? you can't survive? Uh, and Julia, you, in your article, you note that in 2016, an Oregon District Court judge wrote, quote, I have no doubt that the right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life is fundamental to a free and ordered society, which it seems almost impossible to argue with that statement. Yet the Biden administration is apparently arguing that there is not actually a constitutional right uh, to be able to live. Uh, wh so what is what is the status of this lawsuit and the Biden administration's posture toward it? 
Yeah. Um, so this is a lawsuit that was filed during the Obama administration, you know, attempting to block the administration's attempts to expand uh, fossil fuels. There was obviously a massive expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure happening during uh, the nat natural gas boom. Um, and over the past few years, there have been some rulings on sort of different legal questions of the case, mainly standing. So whether the plaintiffs had standing to sue uh, the government. Um, and different federal courts have sort of ruled on these different questions, but none have actually ruled on the merits of the case. So on whether, you know, such a constitutional right um, really does exist. And so now after um, the case was dismissed in the Ninth Circuit Court due to a lack of standing, the plaintiffs have revised their complaint and they're they're awaiting a ruling on whether their revised complaint sort of addresses those standing questions and whether they'll be able to move forward to a trial. So what is the, uh, if you could tell us more about the revised complaint and then maybe what we anticipate hearing from the government in response to it. Um, you, obviously, I imagine that precedent is on the line here in a, in a big way, because if you rule, if you get a certain ruling in this case, um, a lot of other cases are probably on the line. So what do we expect the government to counter with here? Yes, okay, so the the, um, again, the revised complaint doesn't really deal with like the bigger questions of, you know, the constitutional right to a climate, um, um, the sort of legal arguments that are being made. It sort of narrowly addresses um, the government's concerns about standing. And and the plaintiffs expect that in, um, you know, the district court where the case currently is, they're going to get a favorable ruling because it's before the judge who had allowed the case to proceed back in 2016. Um, however, the the Biden administration's Justice Department um, has sort of promised that if the case does move forward, they will do everything they can to make sure it doesn't get a trial. They don't want to go to trial in this case. And it is worth noting that um, last fall there were there were settlement talks on the case between the plaintiffs and the Biden administration, sort of hoping to come to a resolution that would um, you know lead them both both to drop the case, but. The talks were unsuccessful. Um, the the nature of those talks is confidential, but the plaintiff's lawyers basically said, you know, the administration did not come to the table in good faith. There wasn't really any way we could move forward. I'm curious about the standing argument because I'm wondering if if the people that filed the case are adults, and they, you argue, well, you're 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 probably going to live another 50, 60 years, and according to our climate projections. Things will not be very good in 50 years, but you'll be able to breathe. So therefore, you have no standing. So they need, do they need plaintiffs who haven't been born yet so that the math works out on the standing? Or what, like, what, do you know how they resolve the, are trying to resolve the standing question? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so actually, the the plaintiffs in the case and, you know, in the original plaint were basic complaint were arguing we are already facing the impacts of climate change, you know, and you have plaintiffs whose whose homes were destroyed in floods, um, who aren't able to engage in like the recreational activities they might have might have otherwise been able to um, engage in. So so there's sort of that component, but but an additional um, component here is whether there's anything like the federal government can actually do to redress these harms, basically. And and what the plaintiffs are asking for is for the government to put forward a plan to um, reduce carbon emissions and for the court to sort of oversee the um, implementation of that plan, which is obviously a massive ask and a big role for the courts. Um, but, but what the plaintiffs are basically saying is, well, the executive branch has failed, the legislative branch has failed, so so we're taking this to the courts. So what does the timeline look like on this moving forward? When can we expect um, a, ru a ruling on the revised complaint? 
they're they're expecting a ruling sort of any day now on on this revised complaint and then it's sort of going to be a question of like what exactly the Biden administration does um going forward what what the plaintiffs lawyers have said is that you know DOJ lawyers are want to take this to the the federal court the supreme court's emergency docket um to you know block block a trial um and i i actually want to address something that that you had raised earlier about you know precedent and i i think it's 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 actually a very interesting issue in this case because most of what the federal courts have dealt with again is this standing question and the courts are ruling on standing questions all the time and and there there isn't really a lot of climate precedent necessarily in in what they've said about it so far however something about this case has really you know upset you'll see it in like um articles from corporate law firms or, or from the republican attorney general's association um which is that sort of over the course of this lawsuit federal federal judges have made like little things like okay we don't question the relationship you know between humans burning fossil fuels and climate change or you know of course there's no question that you can't exercise uh life and liberty if um you can't read the air outside so these little things have come up over the course of the case that haven't really come up in the federal courts before where you have judges saying things like well you know some of these things are very obvious you know on the merits of the case but but they've only been dealing with the procedural questions um and i think that's really interesting that these are things sort of that the courts are starting to talk about but they haven't really written in any like binding or precedent setting decision that's fascinating yeah and, and julia this feels to me like a, a symptom of our democratic process you know decreasingly being able to uh, adjudicate any live issues like that there doesn't seem to be any faith on either side that uh, that elections or congress or the executive branch are actually going to move the needle one way or another and so you're just saying well i guess the last it's almost like calling the manager hmm. like I want, to, I, want to, I, want to, I want to speak to your manager about the, cl the climate being destroyed, which I guess if you've tried everything else, uh, might as well go for it, though. How do you expect this would uh, shape up in a six to three Republican court? Yeah, I mean, this this was something I sort of kept asking the plaintiffs lawyers like, OK, I see your point. You know, the other the other branches of government has failed. But like the courts, you know, is is that really where, where you want to be dealing with the with the issue of climate change? Um, and and what they sort of kept directing me back to was, OK, we're, we're actually making a pretty, you know, conservative legal argument here. This, this is an argument rooted in the public trust doctrine, which is um, sort of a common law issue. It dates back to Roman law. And and, you know, you, you, you um, we're not we're not really making like a, a, a sort of radical claim. But I think I sort of had the same question of. You know, do we want climate change to be to be addressed by an activist court system that, you know, has is stacked with right wing judges? I think they're basically saying there's not a downside here. We're not really concerned about a bad precedent being set and you have to try. But it's a legitimate question. Yeah, I expect a lot of corporate money to pour into these sorts of lawsuits because this could cost them. I mean, if this goes to trial and even becomes a big public issue and inspires more and more cases, this could cost them a whole lot of money in the future. Absolutely. At least be a good John Grisham book. <laughs> yeah, I'll read it. I mean, Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And stick around. We'll have more Rising right after this. We spend a lot of time on this program discussing the ongoing controversy, the ongoing inquiries around the origin of the pandemic. And central to the question of how this pandemic started is gain-of-function research. On the one hand, you have scientists who've said that the evidence that has emerged thus far suggests that the research being done 
at the WIV, the, a lab in Wuhan, China, may have been responsible for the sparking of the pandemic. On the other hand, you have scientists who say that that is unlikely and the, that the evidence points to more of a natural origin. So today, we, rather than discuss that particular controversy, we want to get more to the question of what actually is gain-of-function research and what are the costs and the benefits of it to society. So we're bringing on two people who are both experts in this field. Right, they know the subject better than we do, and we're joined today by biologist and assistant professor at MIT Media Lab, Kevin Esvelt, and an immunologist and associate professor, Gigi Granville, at Johns Hopkins University. They are joining us now to discuss. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, happy to be here. So Gigi, I wanna start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about what gain-of-function research is? I'm sure the audience is familiar with the basics, but from an expert, just define gain-of-function and then maybe tell us what you think people get wrong when they think of gain-of-function research. Yeah, so gain-of-function research, that term came about when describing some uh, some influenza studies. Um, and it's not like uh, any function has been as important here. We're talking about the gain of transmissibility and pathogenicity. So those are the two functions that um, a, a pathogen might have that we would care about. It's a policy term because it's not something, um, if you're a scientist, you're not gonna say, well, I'm doing gain of function research. It's not, it doesn't come from the scientific community. And so from that reason, for that reason, it's a little bit hard to kind of retrofit it onto work that scientists are, are doing. But you know, people do work with, with viruses to better understand pathogenicity and to better understand transmissibility. And some of those experiments have biosafety considerations that you need to do them in high containment. You need to do this work in safe conditions. You need trained people to do it. And so um, you know, there is more oversight for that type of research. So I think um, it kind of gets all jumbled together, but for the purposes going forward, we're interested in how do we best understand? Is it important to do this kind of work? I would say it is important to do this kind of work to better understand the viruses that we are going to face um, as we you know, deal with more pandemics. Because um, it's not, uh, we're not going to, COVID is unfortunately not going to be the last um, uh, pandemic that we're going to face. Hmm. And Kevin, I'm curious for your response to that because you know I've, I've just personally been kind of skeptical as I've learned more about this type of research that there are actually uh, the, the benefits that outweigh the serious costs and the, the costs being the risks of sparking a pandemic uh, rather than actually you know, finding ways to, to, to treat one or end one or slow one down. So wh where, where do you come down on the, on the risk benefit analysis here? Well, I'm somewhat unusual in that I'm probably most concerned about the risk of deliberate misuse. That is, today, we don't actually know of any credible viruses that would cause a new pandemic. So gain-of-function research on potential pandemic viruses, trying to make them more transmissible, is one way that we might learn about a virus that could cause a new pandemic. And around 30,000 people have the technical skills to assemble an infectious influenza virus, since Gigi mentioned it, from synthetic DNA, which is readily available. And we know from COVID that a pandemic can kill more than 10 million people, more than any single nuclear weapon. So getting this right is really important. And I think something that gets missed is everyone here wants to save the most lives. We just disagree on how to do that. So I think we need to put some numbers on it. I think that's what's missing. Let's just assume that we can 
perfectly prevent any natural virus from spilling over from animals if we know what it is. On the flip side, once we know what it is, all those people can deliberately make it. So is that a trade-off that we're willing to make? Hmm. Gigi, Gigi, what is your response to that? Where do you come down on the question of whether that's a trade-off we should be willing to make? And I'll, I'll add to it, gain of function isn't the only way to create a bioweapon. And there are many ways to create bioweapons that are now going to be sort of hard for governments, certainly, to control. So with that in mind, uh, how do you fall on the cost-benefit analysis here? Sure. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right about bioweapons. Um, you know, the bioweapons of yore, the ones that uh, that we know that Russia, for example, stockpiled, those would still be effective weapons. Um, and those are the, the big concerns that we, you know, we still kind of have about Ukraine um, because, uh, you know, Russia hasn't been investing in their biotechnology uh, for a long time. But, you know, all that stuff is still is still within their grasp. Um, I think we don't know as much as we really need to about when it comes to uh, infectious viruses and the potential for spillover. And my favorite example for that is Omicron. When Omicron first emerged on the on the scene, we had uh, everybody was like, "Oh, wow, that's really different than the previous version, and that's bad." And although they had more things to say, there was still a big gap in what we could say was going on with that that virus, except until we could see it infecting people, and then what happened to them. So we we don't we can't really look at a virus yet and say you know and and have a good idea of how it's going to affect a person. And I think that there is more that we can learn for that in, in that direction, and that would be useful. And um, and I hope that. In 20 years or so, we'll look back and say, wow, they really were in the dark about some of these variants and they should have been um, really concerned about this one and not that one for these reasons. You know, I think we there's a lot more that we should be learning um, because we are just going to keep getting faced with them. And Kevin, what, though, would we do with that information? Like, like what, in other words, what's the point of the learning the, this stuff? So there's really two rationales given. Number one, maybe if we know which viruses are dangerous, we could prevent them from spilling over from animals into people. Number two. But how? Mm -hmm. let, 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 me, let me just pause, stop you there. How, how are you going to, okay, let's say you find it. You're like, uh-oh, this bat cave or, you know, these, this pig farm has this virus that we have now isolated and shared the recipe with 30,000 people, which is scary enough. But okay, we know that this, it exists here. We, what, then slaughter everything at the farm or, or like annihilate the cave? Or is that, is that the thinking? Well, there's a lot of different proposals on the table, but I'd rather take a step back since you mentioned cost-benefit analysis. Sure. Let's just assume it works perfectly. So not even worry about vaccines. Obviously, okay. it's hard to test a vaccine for a virus that you think might cause a pandemic, is of unknown lethality, and has never infected a human before. You'd have to deliberately infect people with viruses like that in order to test a vaccine candidate. So we're not going to do that. But let's just assume if we identify a pandemic-capable virus from nature, that we can perfectly prevent it from spilling over. And let's say if it had spilled over, these viruses would cause 10 million deaths, judging at COVID. But most viruses in nature will never spill over. That is, estimates of how many viruses out there can infect people range from 10,000 to 500,000. And we know that there's only 
four or so pandemics per century, just looking at history. So if there's 400 viruses out there that could cause a new pandemic of that magnitude, there's only a one in a hundred chance that the one that we identify would have spilled over anyway. That would still means it would save 100,000 lives, which is a lot. But on the flip side, say there's just a 1% chance every year that one of those people would deliberately release it and cause 10 million deaths. Over the course of a century, that means it's likely to happen. And so the cost then would be 10 million lives, 100,000 lives saved versus 10 million lives lost. And that's assuming no accident risk. And that's assuming that knowing what it is would let us perfectly prevent it from causing any harm through the natural route. The numbers just don't add up. Right. I want to get your response to that, Gigi, because that's persuasive to me. But I'm also wondering then on the other side, if, if what are we missing if we you know, have all of these safeguards in place and, and basically bans against gain of function research? That might be a good way to frame the question. You know, what, what, do, what would we lose in that case? Yeah, well, so I just want to address a previous you know, discussion about culling. I mean, those are real world con- uh, consequences. If there's a virus that's particularly dangerous, this is the kind of uh, struggle that we have with H5N1, with an influenza virus. So if it's detected in a bird population on a farm, I mean, yes, culling is ex- exactly what happens. And these are these are you know real consequences for, for farmers and people who have livestock and these decisions cannot be made lightly and they're done in the public health interest. Um, so it's, it's important stuff. Um, as far as, you know, the, um, I, I think we need to, we still need a little bit humil- of humility as far as what we do know. Um, we have seen great demonstrations of spillovers from the natural world, but that is something that we need to study better and make the case that we need to create more buffers between us and the natural world. Like, you know, there needs to be maybe uh, parks that are put in between um, where where land is developed and uh, where we have, you know, bat populations and things like that. We need to study this much more. Um, as far as what we lose, we lose the ability to learn more about the viruses, what's dangerous and what damage they're causing. I teach a class on 1918 flu. When that whipped through the world, um, we did not even know what viruses were. And um, and so there was no potential for vaccines. So what they the virus wasn't even identified for 14 years. Um, I think we don't want that kind of um, ignorance to be our, our con- our, the way that we approach uh, problems today. And I feel like, you know, in 20 years, 50 years, people are going to look back at our scientific awareness, I hope, and think that we are just as ignorant as, as we look back at the, the world at 1918. Um, and there, there are, yes, there may be problems that we have to deal with, but there are people who are losing their lives to infectious diseases every day. And we need to do what we can to better understand them and to prevent that from happening. So, um, and to develop better vaccines, better surveillance, better public health. Um, these are all things that are happening uh, today. And I appreciate the future concerns and we need to be able to do something, do what we can to address them. But, um, but there's, you know, there's, there's some real world problems that we have to deal with in the next two or three years. Yeah, and, and Kevin, you, you briefly mentioned, you said, let's assume that all of the spillover is prevented and that all of the biohazard risks, biosafety risks are handled 
you know, 100% efficiently, that, there's, that there are no accidents. So setting aside the deliberate release, there's no accidental release. But what, what is, you know, in the, in the field itself, what, what is the success rate when it comes to these types of biosafety measures? So here is where I'm going to get lots of my colleagues angry at me no matter what I say. <laughs> the answer is lab leaks do happen. They happen at a low rate. They happen at a lower rate, the better the biosafety level is. The risk is non-trivial. It's definitely not zero, like my cost-benefit calculation assumed. I think the experiments can, some experiments that are informative that would answer many or even perhaps all of the questions DG addresses could be done safely. And the number one way to do that is just never make a replication competent virus that you think might cause a pandemic in humans. Don't work with candidates in the laboratory that might cause pandemics in humans. But to address the misuse risk, the fundamental question is, do you need to learn whether a specific virus could cause a pandemic? Do you need to run experiments that can increase our confidence that it can or not? Because you can sample the viruses out there, sequence them, ideally don't share the whole genome, leave a little bit out, but enough to let us test broad spectrum vaccines, broad spectrum antivirals, know a little bit more about which animal reservoirs, as Gigi mentioned, might be riskiest. That could then guide those efforts, tell us when to do culling. I think we can learn pretty much everything that would allow us to make better vaccines, antivirals, and prevent spillover without ever running experiments that would tell us, could this one be used as a weapon? Gigi, do you think that's a, a reasonable uh, solution? It's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, you know, often the devil's in the details. And so for, you know, for uh, flu, if you talk to flu biologists or coronavirus uh, researchers, um, you know, it, it gets uh, very hard to translate um, uh, out what they're, you know, the kinds of experiments they want to do. But I do agree. I mean, I strongly believe that things can be done safely. And I am not particularly worried about um, some well-resourced labs that take training seriously, that um, that have uh, funding for equipment and so forth. And a lot of the work that, that I am doing and I, uh, I'm advocating for is to make sure that we kind of make that international, that we do what we can to support laboratories in other countries, uh, that they that they have the resources they need to be able to do work safely. Because you can't, um, given how uh, accessible biological research is and how nations want to fund their own research programs because they see an economic benefit from this, um, we need to promote biosafety norms um, in, a, in a more indirect way than, you know, you, there's not going to be some grand authority that's going to tell a sovereign nation what they can or cannot do in some small biotech industry. You know, so we need to do what we can to use all the levers to increase biosafety awareness and education. And, uh, Gigi, let me press on Kevin's point there. You know, if, if it is the case that we can learn everything we need to know in order to, uh, you know, produce the best antivirals, you know, produce the vaccines that map up against the potential threats that we have coming. Why is it that these coronavirus researchers, these flu researchers, are still set on making these viruses that could replicate into a pandemic? Is it they just it's knowledge pursuit of knowledge? Is it DARPA and the Defense 
industries, not just in the U.S., but in other countries, are willing to fund that kind of research, and so therefore that they'll do that kind of research. Why? Like, and should it be left up to them? Because their opinion on this is interesting, but it should not, to me, it should not be the deciding voice. Like, they, the, the research that they are doing affects everyone on the planet if they screw up. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, clearly these uh, these virologists disagree with, with Kevin on this point. And, and, um, and I agree with you that it should not be just a matter of, um, of, you know, whatever somebody wants to do that they should be able to do. There should be, there should be oversight and discussion and people should be doing what they are doing for a purpose. But often when you get into these details, some of the, um, uh, it doesn't, it's not quite as dangerous as, uh, as maybe it's billed um, to others. And so, yeah, I think these things need to undergo review, technical review, extremely technical review, that they are taking the precautions that they need to take and that they are doing it for solid reasons. Um, but it's really hard to do science in the hypothetical and um, and to have this kind of review that you're doing things for good purposes, um, that you're taking the precautions you can take, it gets into a very uh, involved technical discussion, which doesn't make for as good TV, but it's really important. And I wish that some of our lawmakers had a much more nuanced understanding of biology, even if it's if it is boring, um, to be able to to have these conversations. And I feel like. When it comes to the nuclear world, you have senators and congressmen who have a good understanding of this, even if they not if they're not technical experts themselves, and um, and I don't see that as as much with biology. Kevin, do you have any final thoughts or response to that? Yeah, well, overall, the reality is the analogy to nuclear is a good one. If these gain of function researchers are successful in generating more transmissible variants of existing highly lethal influenza viruses, say, although this applies to coronaviruses as well, then they will have identified a combination of mutations in a virus or in a pre-existing virus in nature that could be released to cause a pandemic with all the attendant tragedy, causing more death and destruction than a nuclear weapon. And there is no way that they can succeed, that they can get any of the benefits. The whole point of their experiments is to learn which viruses could cause pandemics, even which viruses might or might not evolve to become pandemic capable. They cannot succeed without warning the world that this virus is pandemic capable. And I gave them everything in my cost-benefit analysis. And it still says, one pandemic virus identified might save 100,000 lives, but the cost in deliberate release would be an expected 10 million deaths. Are we willing to publish the blueprints for what amounts to an arsenal of plagues when we can get almost all of the benefits without ever learning which particular viruses could cause pandemics? I would love to see a pandemic test ban treaty because there's a narrow set of experiments that could cause pandemics. And I think we should ban those because these things are more dangerous than nuclear weapons and they are far, far more accessible. And I haven't even gotten into all the ways that one could cause even more damage deliberately by releasing it in say a travel hub 
than it would cause naturally, which gives us more time to prepare. This is a really helpful debate and conversation. Thank you to both of you. Yeah, I think, Gigi, you made uh, the best case you could, but I think this was pretty clear, <laughs> I think. What do, you, what do you think? Ryan I mean, voted. Uh, uh, you know, I, let's, let's call the jury in here. I think it's, it's hard. It's hard. I think, I think I'm probably still closer to Kevin's side on this, but I do like the 1918 example that Gigi provides is a really good one because the advancement of information has helped us in sort of incalculable ways. It's hard to, hard to quantify. I'm for the pandemic test ban treaty <laughs> for that. Thank, thank you guys for joining us. That was really helpful. Thank you. And we'll have more rising right after this. We want to go over the primary campaigns that happened this week, many, many of which are actually still being counted. Yep. Uh, so to, to update from the week before, Summer Lee has been declared the victor of that, uh, that Pittsburgh area race. That's, right. that's certified. That was an extremely close one. We also have an extremely close similar race between Henry Cuellar and Jessica Cisneros uh, that appears to have gone to Henry Cuellar at this point, yeah. we'll see, by a couple of hundred votes. Uh, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see. The, at the very end, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Jim Clyburn, Reed Hoffman, the, co- the founder of uh, LinkedIn, came in with a massive super PAC. Clyburn and Pelosi came in to help, which really kind of shook the confidence of a lot of Democratic voters because this happened a little more than a week after the shooting in Buffalo. It happened on the day of the shooting no, not, not, not that far away in Uvalde. Uh, Henry Cuellar is you know, one of the you know, strongest kind of uh, NRA champions in, in the House Democratic Caucus. And it happened just a couple weeks after the Supreme Court decision uh, to o- overturn Roe v. Wade was announced. And he's the last remaining kind of uh, pro-life, quote-unquote, pro-life Democrat in the House. And the Democratic leaders are constantly saying, Gee, we would love to deliver the things that we promised for you, but it's that darn mansion and it's that darn cinema. <laughs> but then you get a situation like this, and they do everything they can to push a Henry Cuellar over the top. And that's the, the benefit of primary season, is really getting to zoom in on what the party establishment's priorities are and it would do the same thing with McConnell on the other side of the aisle. The, the end of the day, all they want is power. So in certain races, if actually they could be convinced that the leftist or the conservative candidate was more electable, oh, they, I mean, yes. Remember the Tea Party? I mean, in certain cases where somebody was clearly more electable, even if they didn't really like their policies, all right, we'll get behind you. But in these races, it shows like that's what their priority is. Their priority, even if they're not going to do anything with the power. And that's what you're to your point. That's exactly what you can see here. Like they can talk this game as much as they want, but all they want is power because they can trade on that power without actually having to take tough votes um, when there are close margins. And Pelosi and Clyburn came out for Cuellar last time and he when he won by 4000 votes against Cisneros and he repaid the favor by joining Josh Gottheimer's, quote, unbreakable nine to split the bipartisan infrastructure bill away from the Build Back Better agenda so that they could then kill Biden's agenda. So he repaid them by killing their agenda. They come back and support him again after Mm -hmm. he did that. So we talked about how last week Kurt Schrader, another one of the unbreakable nine, lost his uh, primary to Jamie McLeod Skinner in Oregon. Carolyn Bordeaux, 
who is a third member of the Unbreakable Nine, was in a primary against Lucy McBath in suburban Atlanta. She, she got crushed. Yeah. Uh, and Philemon Vela, a friend of Cuellar's, another Texas uh, congressman, qu has already quit. In April, he joined Aiken Gump. So he quit Congress. <laughs> Hell yeah. So three of the Unbreakable Nine are now gone. Cashed out. Cuellar might survive with this 200 uh, 200 vote late lead. We have it, Michelle Viejo, a, uh, a progressive candidate challenging a DMFI backed and kind of a right wing Democratic backed candidate, L appears to have won by 23 votes in a primary. This is in a lean R district. And again, unbreakable nine. This is Vicente Gonzalez's seat. Uh, he was one of the unbreakable nine. He left to, uh, because he's running instead in Philemon Vela's district, which mm -hmm. was opened up because Vela went to K Street because that's more Democratic. So they're just constantly giving up Democratic seats to Republicans and then being rewarded for it by Democratic leadership. Do you, do you remember a time where there were this many nail biters, especially primaries, in this concentrated no, period because of time? No, there hasn't been... Because I can't There haven't been it. really contested Democratic primaries um, for the most part over the last like 40 years. And on the other side, another worthwhile update here that actually gets into the same trend is that the Pennsylvania Senate election oh, is headed for a recount. Dr. Oz has declared victory. He's you know, by like less than a thousand or something. It is an incredibly yeah. narrow margin, um, and he refers to himself as the presumptive. I think he, he says presumptive winner of that uh, primary race. It is headed for a recount. There are challenges over mail-in ballots, which is a very ugly, <laughs> obviously a very ugly thing for Republicans to get into in Pennsylvania, although it could be a clarifying Stop battle. The count. It, it could be the it could force a sort of clarification on behalf of the Republican Party, depending on what happens in terms of how they handle these sorts of things. But Dr. Oz um, was endorsed by President Trump because Donald Trump saw him as the more electable option over McCormick or over Barnett. And we talked about this a couple of weeks back, but Barnett actually at the end of the race was able to get uh, support from kind of some people in the MAGA wing who were unhappy with Dr. Oz's connections mm -hmm. to China, to his early position on transgender ideology. To him being Dr. Oz. Yeah, and for him being Dr. Oz, exactly, exactly. Are you kidding um, me? Yeah, right. Uh, having all of these connections in Hollywood and in the news media um, that are displeasing to Republican voters for good reason in this time period. Um, and so you had Trump weighing in by saying his, his justification for supporting Dr. Oz is that he is more electable. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge factor in the race as well. So at the end of the day, anytime you look at what Mitch McConnell is doing with his little chess pieces around the country, it's the same thing. It's about electability. And if you have power, you can confirm judges. Um, you can set the congressional agenda. You can do all of those things, sure. Um, but those big agenda items outside of judges and setting the agenda um, in and of itself, are they going to do anything? Do they want to do anything more than obstruct? Uh, that's a big question. How much do you think this will hobble whoever the Republican nominee is in the end? How do you mean? Like, like in Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania. Like, is this, is this contested uh, fight over, these, over the voting going to make it less likely that one or the other's supporters come out in November because 
in, yeah. jo in Georgia, Georgia, you had just gonna say. all these people saying, well, what's the point of voting? It's just going to be stolen anyway. Yeah. And so then they didn't vote. They certainly didn't come out and vote for Purdue, who just got absolutely smacked around. He got schlacked. Um, and the that is a, a huge point of contention, especially with people who were generally, I would say, friendly to Trump, especially um, earlier in that cycle, were extremely frustrated with the election rhetoric because they believe that it lost uh, Georgia for them. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because mm -hmm. if you're being told <laughs> your vote's not going, I mean, 100%. So I think that's not just a problem in Pennsylvania. I think that's going to be a problem elsewhere. Now, anticipating that, you know, Republican candidates can craft messaging around it. Um, but no, I, I think that's absolutely a problem going forward when you have the problem not just in the presidential election but then one that's repeated in the primary how they handle this mail-in balloting situation is going yeah. to going to be really crucial um, and and whether they can you know actually weather the storm and say they have faith in the results that's a big question and what about kathy barnett's supporters so these are these are people what she, she wound up with 20 plus percent or so right? yeah 26 percent i think yeah and so these are people who looked at Trump's pick, Dr. Oz, like, nah. They looked at the McCormick pick, who's the kind of trying to do the Yunkin thing of being the, the hedge fund billionaire who's going to wear a vest and be reasonable, but mm -hmm. also, like, spout some MAGA stuff. They looked at him, and they're like, no, not doing him either. Um, we're with Kathy Barnett. She's yeah. the one who's really going to, you know, uh, you know, flip over the apple cart here. Mm -hmm. So... Where do they go in the general if it is if it is Dr. Oz? Or do you think Fetterman, because of his kind of cultural anti-establishment cachet, uh, is assuming that he recovers fully from this stroke, uh, do you think he could capture enough of them that it makes a difference? Or do you think they stay home? I don't. The... Yeah, I don't think Fetterman gets a lot of Barnett voters because of some of those cultural differences, and that like Fetterman may aesthetically be able to look like we talked about this. You know, he right. he may look the part of what some of those voters are looking for in candidates, but the, those hot button cultural issues are the ones that pushed them away from Dr. Oz mm -hmm. in the first place. And plus, they're voting in Republican primaries, so they're more of the diehard base right. and less likely to be picked off. That said, if Fetterman runs a smart campaign, I do think he can uh, get people who would otherwise stay home and not vote, or some right leaners in particular areas of the state, um, maybe outside Pittsburgh, that area, to come and vote for him. Um, and I, I could totally see that happening. I just, I doubt that the people who are dedicated enough to vote in a Republican Senate primary right. would be the ones that would turn out for Fetterman and the, the general. Right. Yeah. And it, it, I was going to say, it's probably going to be very close. Uh, Pennsylvania always seems to be very close. Well, also depends on the climate. If this is bad for Democrats as it's looking, but on the other hand, if if you have people fired up, uh, be, you know, if you remember after Parkland yeah. in 2018, yes. you had this youth youth turnout surge. Uh, so you have that combined with Roe. So maybe that, and there's so much partisanship that maybe that pushes back against the typical midterm malaise that in party. I, th I think Fetterman, is, his biggest obstacle is the easiest, most obvious one, and it's going to be where gas prices are um, and where inflation is when people are going to the polls. And he's going to have to run a really smart campaign. He sort of talked about that issue in strategic, politically strategic right. ways before, um, but how he handles it I think is going to be absolutely the highest order. That's what everyone's, what's going to be front and center on, on general election voters' minds. And we've also barely seen him in two weeks. Like mm -hmm. there, I think there's been a collective maybe 10 seconds of video Right. of him posted since his stroke two weeks ago. Now, 
he needs to rest and he needs to recover. It's not criticism, but we'll see how the recovery goes. Like yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 if, if four weeks from now, six weeks from now, we've still only seen 10, 20 seconds of video, people are going to start to wonder how he's doing. Absolutely. And I hope and pray that he's doing well. Um, that was, I mean, just an incredible situation to happen a couple yeah. of days before voting. Um, but such an interesting race. The race in Ohio, we talked about this last week too, between Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance. Just some of these races are going to pit two very interesting arguments mm -hmm. from the various parties against each other. And Pennsylvania is absolutely a place where that's going to happen. Ohio, it's going to happen in. Um, so this is going to be a, a, this cycle is already shaping up to be really interesting. And, and just the final point I will say is the fact that these are nail biting, uh, you know, tiny margins in crucial races where bases are turning out in primary mm -hmm. elections. It tells you how divided uh, just each party is in and of itself. I mean, there's always division in parties, but when you're having these races thin margins um, between the establishment and the sort of populist wing, um, that's, that tells you exactly how deep these fractures are. Right. And if Tim Ryan were 6'9 and tatted up, <laughs> I think he'd probably have a much better, better shot. Instead, he's kind of the yoga and mindfulness guy. We should but, swap the, yeah, the candidates. That would be interesting. Let them run in both. Yeah. 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 Hey, the carpet bag. Only anyway. one of them, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot on his shoulders. Uh, all right. Well, I guess that's it for the show today. That's it for Rising Fridays. Don't forget, we have our own special little right. logo here, which Let's, I think looks What day nice. is today? It's Friday. It's Friday. If you're watching this on a different day. Yeah. There's also a podcast. Uh, check that out. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss anything. And we will see you next Friday. <laughs> I feel like a, weather, a, a weatherman or a weatherwoman trying to navigate the, the green screen when I point. <laughs> it's an actual screen. <laughs> See you later. See you, everyone. Have a great weekend.